Welcome back to Camp 8, the podcast about people, forests, and how we're connected. This is Eli Sagor, back with Kyle Gill. How you doing, Kyle? I'm doing pretty well, Eli. How have you been doing? I've been great. It's early September now. School's back in, which makes for an interesting situation both at the U. So down in the Twin Cities, we're in the midst of two weeks of online only. That I, We don't know if that'll be followed by many more weeks of online only or if they'll give it a go with in-person instruction. What else have you been thinking about and working on? Uh, well, we've been uh, working on a new three-part program on assisted migration, uh, which is um, all about adaptation. Assisted migration is part of a climate adaptation sort of approach, and and it's required a lot of adaptation for us. So we're uh, following university guidelines, and we are not going to be meeting in person. But geez, you can't do a Zoom online class for eight hours in a day or, or whatever we might do in person. And so we've broken that up into three different uh, two-hour sessions, each of which will involve more kind of independent work and breakout groups and conversation than presentation. Uh, and we're just going to see how that goes. Folks who are local to the area and interested, uh, I, actually, I guess you don't have to be local. Folks who are interested can find out more on our website if they want. And, and that's uh, for and, SFEC, correct? Yeah, Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative. What's new with you? Um, not a whole lot is new other than that it's fall up here now. And so our, our big summer work program at the forestry center is done, but the, that doesn't mean the work is done. A big thing that we spent a lot of the second half of summer working on and we're continuing to work on is preparing our prescribed burn units. So we've been working for a couple of years and finding partnerships with the Forest Stewards Guild and the Nature Conservancy, um, to be able to, um, use fire at the forestry center again and, I had my, my summer seasonals and, and I did a lot of um, pre-burn vegetation monitoring. We installed plots across all the burn units um, to know what's going on there now. And there's a chance that we're going to get just a, a, two of our small units done this fall. There's, there's, uh, there's not a 0% chance that we're going <laughs> to actually get the, what is now, for me, almost five years of work and thinking about trying to get fire um, back on the forestry center uh, property, it seems to be coming to fruition and might actually happen this year. Um, so it's been, it's really cool to see it coming together. There's obviously there's a lot of prep and logistics. So not only um, uh, legal logistics to think through. So who are our partners? Who's a prescribed burn boss that we can actually partner with? Who is going to take, who's going to be willing to, take on that liability and how do we either pay them or exchange um, uh, for teaching or education somehow. So there's been a lot of things, a lot of details to work out because it's a lot more complicated than just uh, lighting a drip torch. And, and we wanted to go through that process in order to then be able to inform others about our process and what it took for us to get fire back on the ground with the hope that that will then encourage other people to follow the uh, a similar, if not improved, uh, planning effort uh, for being able to do to use prescribed fire uh, in combination with silviculture or for other um, restoration or uh, both ecological or cult cultural restoration means. Well, that sounds great. I, I'm really excited to see how that goes, Kyle. And I've you know, in talking to others about fire, I know a big, big part of it is the logistics is just uh, is is logistics and collaboration you know trying to find the right partners as you said make sure all of your ducks are in a row you understand the risks you've planned for the risks 
you have help and equipment and and all of those things on site um, when you need it. And boy, I, I'm I'm excited to see it happen and 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 hope that this fall can be the time. So I wish you luck. Yeah, and a really I think a really important thing to think about is as my uh, colleague Lane Johnson and I are, were talking about this. He's the one that's really been digging into the details about uh, this broad idea that I've had about getting fire back at the forestry center. I'm bringing this up because at the moment, as we're recording, uh, the West is on fire yet again. And um, a buddy of mine was back in the region who works, he works for the Forest Service in Oregon on the Mount Hood District. And they just had 112,000 acres burn in two days. And that's a huge issue. And one of the people that Lane has been talking with said something the sort of if we treated prescribed fire and preventative measures in as much of an emergency situation as we did the response, then we wouldn't be in this situation um, that we are. And of course, it's not a perfect correlation. It's not that we could actually do enough uh, preventative treatment to prevent some of these big fires, but sitting on our hands and um, hoping for things to change uh, and not necessarily putting in the, in the work and always finding limitations rather than possibilities when it comes to doing preventative work is part of the reason that these blowups uh, potentially happen. So we're hoping, again, we're hoping that our little burn, we don't have huge burn units. We're not going to be doing multiple hundred acres or anything, but our hope is that um, we can demonstrate the need, both the ecological need as well as uh, other needs for getting fire done and how to actually do that. That's great. Well, Kyle, let's uh, let's get to this week's episode. It's really a fun one, I think. I had the pleasure of talking with Eric Skank. Eric is the new executive director of the Minnesota Forest Resources Council. He came to Minnesota a few months ago from Illinois. He's going to tell us a little bit more about his background in the interview. Uh, and it, it, uh, we covered a lot of ground, talked about a number of the policy issues and the different programs, the different things that the council's involved in, and, and his vision for the future, which I think is optimistic and, uh, and, and is worth listening to. So why don't we get to that interview now? Welcome back to Camp Aid. I'm here today with Eric Skank. Eric is the new executive director of the Minnesota Forest Resources Council. Eric, thanks for joining us on Camp Aid. Yeah, hello, Eli. Uh, Eric, let's start with the basics. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You came to us, I think, from Illinois before. Is that right? What were you doing there? I did. I'm uh, from Illinois. I grew up in Illinois on a, on a small farm there. And uh, then most recently, I was working for Ducks Unlimited uh, as their manager conservation programs for Illinois and Indiana. So you came to Minnesota, I want to say sometime this spring, right in the midst of uh, an interesting time for all of us. Uh, what drew you to the position? What what made you want to come here? Yeah, I came in with the pandemic, but that wasn't why I came <laughs> or wanted to come. The, so, uh, you know, I've been, I'm at a point in my career where I was looking for the type of, um, of work that would be a, maybe for me, a little bit of a capstone, really something where I could bring, you know, the array of experiences that I've had and, and, and uh, what, you know, kind of uh, knowledge I have about conservation, forestry, wildlife conservation, uh, bring it to bear in a way that was, had a meaningful impact. And, you know, when I saw this uh, advertisement and I immediately was drawn to it. And so 
um, everything else just kind of nicely fell into place and the opportunity presented itself and here I am. Well, that's great. Uh, so this is an interesting time for, for one, in one way because of the pandemic, which uh, you just mentioned. But it's also interesting in preparing for this interview, I realized that the Forest Resources Council is just on the cusp of its 25th anniversary. It's funny. I've been around for 20 years here in Minnesota, and I knew it predated me, but I, I think it's uh, it's in November. The council will celebrate its 25th anniversary. So first of all, congratulations on 25 years. Uh, and second, you know, uh, institutions that, that don't matter don't stick around that long. And that long history would suggest that the council's doing something right and doing important work. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the council? What does the council do? Sure. Well, uh, obviously, I didn't have anything to do with the first 25 years, but hope to have a major impact on the next 25. And, you know, so the council, I will get into a little bit of the history of that. And then we'll talk about this issue about the next 25 years. Um, the, the council really came out of a, um, a public concern that was expressed in the, in the early 1990s about the level of harvest that was occurring in Minnesota, timber harvest. The concern was that that harvest level, which was growing at that time, was going to somehow compromise other values of the forest, the, you know, the ecological values, the social values of the forest. And so the, the response to that public concern was uh, they did a, a generic environmental impact statement. And the generic impact, environmental impact statement was to, you know, look at uh, what the current harvest levels are, were at that time, project them out into the future, and then start analyzing what sort of actions, um, you know, proactive things that might be done in order to preserve the sustainable forest values, um, you know, uh, across the board, ecological, social, um, you know, balanced with the economic values of the forest. And so one of the things that, the, that this uh, generic EIS recommended was the creation of the Minnesota Forest Resources Council. And so there was a statute that was passed in 1995 and it created the, uh, the council. It created some other related uh, programs and, and functions in other organizations. And it really presented the, the, the roadmap for the council to follow over the next, what's been the next 25 years for bringing sustainable forest practices and policies to bear. And so the really the cool part of this story is that it's worked, um, you know, the, over that period of time, the council, uh, there were three areas that uh, uh, the council by statute focused on. One was site level practices that would uh, help make sure that on the ground when there was a management activity or a harvesting activity that um, the, the practices that were used in the field uh, were uh, aligning with sustainable forestry ideas and, and uh, standards. Uh, the other thing that the council did was it started uh, developing a series of landscape level plans. These were uh, six different regions, forested regions in the state, and they developed local committees 
to develop uh, plans so that they would bring in uh, a variety of, of uh, uh, different experts and a variety of different stakeholders uh, to develop these plans, you know, at a high level of trying to say, well, what, what are the forest values that we want to uh, uh, preserve and maintain here? And how, how do we do that in the context of a, a planning type of document like this? And then the third level was, um, was to have asked the, the council to come forward with policy recommendations to the governor and the legislature and to county and local governments. And so the, the, the council is made up of, of 17 different representatives appointed by the governor. And those 17 representatives, it was sort of like Lincoln's uh, cabinet of rivals. The idea was to bring together different stakeholder groups. So there's industry representatives, there's environmental representatives, uh, native tribe representative, there's all these different private land representatives, all these different stakeholders who come together and, and there's, their charge is to find common ground uh, that, that would keep us on a path of sustainability. And their recommendations were all based on that, on that notion. Yeah, that's great. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about those different programs uh, in a minute. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, funny. When I came to Minnesota I, uh, 20 years ago, I distinctly remember, you know, as an extension person, my part of my job was, I mean, my job was outreach and engagement. And I remember making a list at one point of all the different organizations in Minnesota. And I don't have them all written down here, but, uh, you know, Minnesota Forestry Association, Minnesota Forest Industries, County Forestry Affairs Committees, uh, Regional Development Authorities, Soil and Water Conservation Districts, uh, the Minnesota Forest Resources Partnership, which was also uh, named in that same 1995 statute, the Minnesota Forest Resources Act, uh, Minnesota Sustainable Forest Resources Act, uh, the University of Minnesota, the Association of County Land Commissioners, the Society of American Foresters, the Wildlife Society. And there are just a ton of other organizations that all in one way or another come together to represent different stakeholders and, and uh, in some cases to advocate, in other cases to educate or do other things. So what do you see as the unique role of the council? You're not the only organization with, again, with diverse stakeholders, but um, so what, what does the council do that, that adds value to that uh, pretty big group? Yeah, I, you know, just as an intro to that, I was really surprised to see all these organizations as well. Coming from Illinois, I think you could put all the professional foresters in a school bus. <laughs> and, and here I was just really amazed at the number of organizations, you know, also um, the number of, of professional uh, people working in the, in the yes. forest uh uh, industry, not industry necessarily as in, you know, the uh, commercial forest products industry, but just across the board, so many and the level of professionalism uh, that was in the state. It was, I was extremely impressed uh, by all of that. So you asked the question, so what, how does the council different than any of these other things? And so the council, you know, really came with a very uh, specific purpose. And it was to create, to bring these different stakeholder groups together and, and create 
um, these practice recommendations, these, these plans, and these policy recommendations that incorporated all the, uh, the, the expertise uh, of, of all these different groups in trying to figure out well, what are the correct things to do at these different levels of, uh, of trying to uh, guarantee a sustainable forest future. And so, you know, it was charged to, you know, to be this, this, um, this unit to bring, bring together the, the different voices and in the different uh, points of view and come out with recommendations or actions that uh, hopefully the whole group would uh, adopt. And that's largely what's happened. Um, you know, the, all of the, the work of the council ends up being uh, just that, recommendations. Uh, the, even the site level guidelines, that's probably one of the most impressive pieces of work of the council. These guidelines, you know, when you, when you look at them, there's 600 pages of these, you know, basically uh, best management practices uh, to be applied at a field level. And, and it's all voluntary. And so the idea was to, uh, by giving all these different, uh, you know, professional and other uh, voices uh, to the decision, uh, that we would have a product that people would trust and use. And that's basically what has gone on. And so um, it's really an amazing story. It's gotten a lot of national attention uh, over time uh, because of the approach. And, you know, we were able to, in the state, avoid uh, having to go down a, maybe a difficult regulatory type of uh, road in this way, it's uh, so it's it's a it, it's turned out to be a great model uh, for how to get uh, you know agreement and things done. Yeah, it does seem to have worked well. I know that the council also, as part of the site level program, does uh, periodic uh, monitoring and and publishes monitoring reports and. Compliance rates seem to be very high, a little bit higher for some guidelines than others. But then again, uh, it's not just that they're voluntary. They're, you know, forest ecosystems are complicated and it, it, you know, it, it only makes sense to apply certain guidelines in certain ways. And so there's some variation, but it does seem to be um, working. Eric, let's talk a little bit more about... Um, about those programs. And maybe it makes sense just as a segue to talk first about the guidelines. So you mentioned the site level program, and I know that program has undergone some changes recently. Um, but uh, so developing, so the, the council was responsible for organizing a process to develop the initial guidelines. Guidelines were then revised, maybe other times too, but I know that they were most recently revised in 2014. Um, uh, and, and then I know there's a monitoring effort. So uh, is is what can you tell us about the guy about the site level program and how it's um, sort of evolved over time or or where it's going in the future? Yeah, so I wasn't again here during the time, but the stories that I've heard have been remarkable about you know how um, they would just almost you know uh, lock themselves in a room and they would have these uh, very pointed. Um, discussions about specific guidelines and and uh, the, the 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 details of the standards that they were trying to put together, 
And the, you know, the principle that the council stood behind all through this process is that uh, first and foremost, our decisions are going to be science-based. Our recommendations are going to be science-based. We're not going to compromise the science, but we're going to try to figure out what is the common ground and what, what, are, the, what are the areas where it is, uh, you know, um, there might be more negotiable, uh, you know, kind of options for how we accomplish these different things. But but there would be uh, these, as I you know understand it, there would be these long drawn out um, uh, meetings and um, you know wrestling over the the wording and the the language and the extent of these guidelines. And then at the end of the day, they said, "All right, this is it. We've come up. We've done this, and and this is the set of either the first set or the renewed set of these guidelines." And so. Um, you know, and they cover everything. They cover aesthetic issues. They cover wildlife conservation issues. They cover uh, uh, basic issues to protect the uh, integrity of the of the site. You know, as an example of the, you mentioned the monitoring program. So there is a monitoring program. It's actually done. Uh, the monitoring is done through um, a related effort that's housed within the Department of Natural Resources. So we're not in charge of monitoring our own guidelines. We have a separate body that does this independent monitoring, but then we're responsible for seeing, listening to that monitoring report. And um, in a, if we find out that there's uh, some issues there, um, acting accordingly. And, you know, and so like it, at the, the last council meeting, we had a, a report on the a monitoring report and they will go out and they will randomly select sites and they will go out and actually do a field investigation. So it's, the monitoring is done, you know, following, you know, standards, kind of scientific process uh, so that we have uh, information that's not just anecdotal, but can provide real data uh, back for us. And, you know, one of the examples that they had was, uh, you know, an, a, an issue of sensitivity is harvest, harvesting in wetland areas and harvesting in, um, uh, in the winter time to help protect the integrity of these wetland areas. And so there's a, uh, one of the criteria or the standards has to do with how much rutting that might occur uh, from a harvesting activity that is perhaps occurring on an existing wetland or crossing an existing wetland. And uh, and they, they actually go out and they measure whether or not the ruts are more than six inches deep. Now you think about this a little bit, you know, I, sometimes I think I've had a problem with having more than six inch deep ruts in my yard trying to drive across <laughs> there for something. But, but you think about this, how amazing and the other strong level of compliance with this. And, um, but yet, you know, they still, it leads to additional and information about, well, how can we even, you know, uh, maybe uh, make this type of uh, standard and this work better, you know? And so the, it may be that the standard doesn't have, have to change, but maybe the amount of, of uh, information that you provide uh, those in the field, you know, either through really good GIS maps or that kind of thing helps them because, uh, the interest in there in the field is in uh, compliance with the standards, and and so 
um, you know, that's just one example of how the these guidelines end up being so useful. Um, you'll probably, you know, mention too, or want to talk about the educational component. These are parts of the uh, of how the guidelines are intended to be uh, uh, communicated to those who are going to be in the field and and using them. And educational programs for foresters and educational programs for the loggers. So you know. Um, you probably know, I know you know probably more about that than I do, but it, cause that's, that's handled in a different, um, a different part outside, once again, outside the council. But uh, it's just another example of the comprehensive approach uh, that was used uh, that to, you know, get voluntary compliance with these best management practices. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Minnesota Logger Education Program and my organization, the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative, have worked together over the years uh, to to offer a number of uh, guidelines related trainings. Some in the field, some online, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, that's an ongoing effort and and something we're thinking about even now. As uh, you know, they, they need to be updated periodically. Not the content so much, but the the way we deliver that. So. That's uh, something that's on our minds now. So that's the site level program. Uh, what about the landscape program? I know the the that that you know you've talked about the seventeen members of the council, broad diverse group, but uh, there are also uh, these landscape programs. I think it's you might correct me. Is it six landscapes across the state, each with its own local committee, uh, and and they develop plans, landscape level plans, identifying priorities for implementation across the across each of the landscapes. Um, can you tell us a little more about that process? So, you know, another remarkable part of all this, so yeah, so within those six different regions, and those regions are uh, designed to be uh, ecologically similar, um, but also bring in, you know, some realities of, you know, uh, like county lines and that kind of thing for ease of of administration, but but so there are local committees um, with uh, a chair from the local uh, from that region, and they have once again the similar kind of different stakeholder interests that come together, and they take a look at the forest resources in that in that particular region, and develop a plan for you know the future management and use of those resources. Um, part of the interest of those plans is to help, you know, at this 30,000 foot level, if you will, help um, the like different land managers, you know, potentially work together and coordinate their activities is one of the ideas of the plans to help, you know, a big picture goal to say, you know, within this landscape, you know, what are some of the, the real issues that we're concerned about? What are, what are some of the goals that we have? Um, you know, how do we, how do we take and take um, uh, this, this knowledge that is out there about forest resources and put it to work with these local interests, providing input into the process to say, these are the things that we're concerned about in our region and the things that we want to see happen in our region. Uh, The plans are in the process of going through uh, a second generation of uh, of development and 
Um, so in the uh, in the second generation, we're bringing more um, uh, different issues to bear. So like water quality, um, you know, climate considerations, climate change considerations. All these different things are get uh, to be blended in more strongly um, with the with each new generation of the plans. Um, once again, to represent uh, um, kind of current concerns. And uh, so the, the plans are um, not a, uh, they're, they're more dynamic, you know, so that they have, a, they have somewhat of a life of their own to, uh, and then, then there's also been is with the, uh, the addition of, of a stronger consideration of, of different values, but uh, there's been also an effort to tar- try to help uh, see how these plans can be implemented on the ground through better coordination and collaborative efforts within the region. So there's been some, uh, there's a pilot effort up in the Northeast uh, area region um, working on, oh, it's a, it's a pretty large landscape. I want to say 400,000 acres where the, the, the partners have come together in that landscape and they're taking the general goals of the regional landscape plan and they're, they're stepping them down to that landscape and thinking about, well, what do we want to do uh, within this landscape and how can we work together to achieve these types of goals? You know, they might be, uh, they might be directly forest related, forestry related. They might be indirect. You know, the, one of the concerns has to do with, you know, like uh, what's been going on with, uh, with moose populations in the state. So they're bringing these types of concerns and issues uh, to that process and, and trying to come up with now, in this case, on the ground um, uh, practices and projects uh, that uh, are addressing and helping implement those those large scale uh, goals and objectives that are in the in the plans. And then the third uh, program you mentioned is developing policy recommendations, and I'm I'm curious in that context, uh, what you would see as some of the council's biggest recent successes and challenges in, in the policy arena. What are the, and what are the issues that the that the council is working on now? Yeah, so this is this would be a good segue to talk about, you know, not just the last 25 years, but the next five years, because what's happened is if you think about it. Um, 25 years ago when the concern was about the level of harvest in the state. And we had a lot of, of um, we had mills coming into the state. There was a big demand at that time for, for paper product, a big demand for pulp um, materials. And, uh, and it, as it turned out, that was really the peak. Of, it turned out to be the peak of, of that. And so since that time, we've seen a decline in harvest, a decline in the demand for those types of products, so much so that, you know, we're about half of what they anticipated we would be um, back there in those in those uh, early 1990 period. So our harvest levels are about half of that. And at the same time, we've created uh, all these different mechanisms to help uh, see sustainable forestry happen at these different levels. And so, that's a that's a good story right there, of course. Um, but at the same time, so over over this period of time, what, what we started to see is 
other threats to sustainability really emerging and and as we look at those recognizing these other threats are maybe the more important focus for some of the uh, the, the types of sustainable practices and policies that we need to, to implement going forward. And in particular, uh, climate change has become, you know, the, the big issue of concern because climate change in and of itself, you know, the, um, the changes in the, you know, that we're seeing in temperatures, a general warming trend, particularly in winter, and the changes in precipitation patterns, you know, they, those have uh, some direct effects on the forest as well indirect effects by creating stress, additional stress that makes other types of uh, uh, stressors like um, insects, uh, disease. It, it exacerbates those other invasive species. It exacerbates those problems. And so uh, now we're seeing, you know, uh, we're seeing these other issues emerge as being the biggest threats to forest sustainability going forward. And ironically, uh, one of the concerns that the council has is that as the, as the forest uh, products industry has, has uh, started tapering off in, in Minnesota, one of the concerns we have is the loss of, of uh, the capacity uh, to go out and do active forest management. And the active forest management in our, you know, collective view is really um, going to be even more needed in the future. Uh, how do we respond to, you know, uh, large die-offs of, of uh, trees due to, you know, the, the emerald ash borer or, you know, a disease? Uh, and, and there isn't enough money out there in order to go out and uh, take care of those problems using, you know, conservation or taxpayer dollars. What we need is we need a strong industry and a demand for forest products so that as we see those types of uh, um, uh, problems occur in the forest stands, that there's a market for those trees. There's a market for those dead or dying trees. There's a market to go out there and do proactive management in advance of those uh, of those things to try to reduce the impact of those stressors, and and that we've got to have a, a market for those trees in order to to have people out there, the loggers, the uh, the haulers, all the people uh, who are doing sure they're collecting trees for economic purposes. But because of the professional management that we're doing now, there, that, that act of management, that harvesting and thinning is being done to serve uh, environmental, ecological uh, purposes as well. And so if, if we lose that, those markets, we lose all those forest workers and, and the, uh, su the supply chains that, uh, that help help make all this active management possible. So Eric, so there are people who might hear that story and say, well, big deal. Um, if those trees die, they die. 
I don't know anyone that would say we don't care if people lose their jobs. I don't mean to suggest that. But um, beyond that, uh, what's what's the problem with ash trees dying? And and um, you know, how would you respond to 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 that sort of a comment? Well, okay, trees die. Um, how would you respond to that? One of the that? things that's an easy response is you just have to turn on your evening news because uh, right now we can see it real time what's happening in California is, is happening in Colorado. You know, uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago we were hearing stories in Australia. It's happening all over the world. And what's, what the issue is is that the combination of some of these global climate changes with uh, temperature and precipitation Combined with, you know, if you will, a period of time where um, in places where they've lost the ability to manage their forests because they've lost forest industry, and you've seen this uh, buildup of, of uh, fuel, of uh, fuel load in the forest. These are dead standing trees or this, you know, might be a, a, a material on the, on the, on the uh, forest floor. And now we're having these massive uh, wildfires, absolutely massive wildfires. And, you know, again, high temperatures, uh, you know, some record temperatures occurring uh, in the Western states right now. And across the, across the West, we, in, in the Southwest, some, uh, record heat. And that is just, a, you know, an inferno out there with all this, you uh, combustible material in the forest and and uh, it just one uh, unexpected uh, event you know the I saw in the California fires uh, one of the sources of the fire was one of these uh, um, you know the a thing of family uh, celebrating a, a, a newborn child it was a you know reveal party and they had a, they had something go off from this reveal party, whatever they were doing, fireworks or whatever, and it ended up uh, creating um, a forest fire that turned into a massive forest fire that's that's uh, costing billions of dollars to try to uh, to try to uh, wrangle in, and is threatening human lives and is threatening billions of dollars of of uh, property, and that's what we want to avoid, quite simply. We don't want that future for Minnesota. Right. One of the things you didn't mention uh, is forest carbon. We hear an awful lot of conversation now about forest carbon, uh, and both in the context of potential payments to landowners for carbon sequestration and storage, uh, and and also in in uh, related ways for you know mitigating climate change. Uh, trees are about fifty percent carbon by dry weight, and all of that carbon comes from the atmosphere. So rapidly growing trees and then keeping the that carbon in the form of wood, keeping it as wood or using it to displace fossil fuels, um, can be very very important to solving that huge problem you've been discussing of climate change. How how does forest carbon figure into the council's discussions? Is that an area of focus or do you see that becoming an area of focus in the future? And, and what might that look like in Minnesota? For sure. The uh, council and uh, its uh, uh, research advisory committee, which is kind of the brain trust that the council uses for the basis of all of its uh, practices and policies. Uh, the research advisory committee that is, again, uh, composed of 
of uh, these different scientists from across the country uh, have, have come together and developed a climate report. And it identifies this issue. It identifies both the important value of forests in storing carbon, uh, which is like a mitigating factor, as well as some of the adaptive uh, things that we might need to be doing to help forests uh, be able to roll with the punches, if you will, of climate change. So as we talk about carbon, you know, it's uh, carbon dioxide, CO2, is the issue of concern, one of the big issues of concern in terms of what's causing uh, global climate change is, uh, you know, the, the concentration of, of um, uh, CO2 in the air has been increasing dramatically, you know, like exponentially. And, and so there's a, uh, this, this is what causes the change in climate. And, and so trees, as, as a plant, all plants take in uh, carbon dioxide, and then they use the, they separate the carbon uh, atom from the molecule, and the carbon uh, goes into becoming the wood of the tree or the roots. Uh, so the carbon is what becomes the, the, you know, the mass of the plant, and it releases oxygen, of course, that we need um, as part of uh, that photosynthetic process. And so the having trees is a way of bringing that carbon dioxide out of the air and then storing the carbon into material so that it's just oxygen going back into the air. And as we talked about, you know, so the carbon could be in the leaves, it could be in wood of the tree, it could be in the roots. And so that, that forest ecosystem is a way of storing the carbon, removing the carbon out of the air, um, storing it into, uh, into plant material or soil material. And then, uh, as you mentioned too, so even when we harvest forests, um, that, that, that woody uh, material that we harvest and we turn it into a tubifore, well, that tubifore has that, that now it's, that carbon has become a tubifore. And that tubifore maybe goes into building a house. And so now that carbon is now being stored in a house. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's being stored maybe, you know, 100 or more years in that house as a tubifore now. So uh, we're recognizing that, you know, these forests and forest products are very important for storing carbon. And so the council, uh, 25 years ago, we were concerned mainly about, you know, maybe too many trees are being harvested. Now we're looking at all these different things and saying, you know, for a sustainable future, uh, there's a lot of things that we got to take in consideration. You know, how can we help fight uh, this climate change issue? Uh, how can we um, uh, try to do a better job of, of storing carbon uh, in, in natural ways or in the buildings and, uh, and what sort of policies and things that might be needed in order to do that. And the third kind of way that these, all of this comes into play is that, you know, we can use these products uh, to replace petroleum-based sources of energy or fossil fuel-based sources of energy. You can take and you can create, for instance, um, a biodiesel fuel from wood products. So now we're talking about uh, shifting 
from these fossil fuels that are largely the source of carbon going into the atmosphere, shifting and we're using a renewable source of energy, that being wood, once again, and we can use that, uh, we can recycle that carbon back into an energy source and it ends up being cleaner than the petroleum-based. In, in the case of, you know, this diesel fuel example, it ends up being more efficient. It has a, it produces better diesel fuel. It's a better fuel product. The, the biggest problem is, is that it's just right now more expensive uh, to go through the renewable route than it is through the uh, mining of the fossil fuels. And so there may be a need for additional policies to help us wean us off of these types of uh, fossil-based fuels and become a society that is more dependent on renewable energy sources, solar, wind, and some of our renewable sources of uh, coming from the forest. So I'm really glad to hear you talk about that, Eric, uh, before your time, but I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Just within the last few years, we saw a couple of biomass energy plants in Minnesota close down. Uh, we, we've seen uh, biomass energy capacity in this state going in exactly what you and I would both consider the wrong direction. My understanding is that that was largely an economic decision rather than some other driver. Um, so, and, and you mentioned the cost barrier. So, how, what, what are your thoughts as you look into the crystal ball and you mentioned the next 25 years? Do you, you think we can reverse that? Is the, the global economy and are the dollar signs just pointing in the wrong direction? Or are you optimistic that, that we can create an infrastructure to support at a large scale, um, you know, bio-based energy here in, in Minnesota and maybe beyond? Well, I, I'm encouraged because I have young adult children. And unfortunately for all of us, they are much more tuned into the idea of having a lifestyle in a society that is more sustainable, more self-sufficient. And so I have a lot of faith that these younger people are going to insist on a future where uh, we are uh, taking all these types of ideas more seriously and making it, um, you know, our standard way of life. Uh, but it's it's going to be a complicated uh, route. You know, right now, as you talk about this examples, you know, we have here in the Twin Cities, we have uh, Excel Energy who they're using, um, they will use dead trees. Uh, Emerald ash borer has been, um, you know, just really hard on all the ash trees. Uh, and so, you know, what do you do with, you know, thousands of dead trees in an urban setting? Well, uh, fortunately, those trees have been going into uh, being used, burned and used to create thermal elect and th electricity. Um, and so that's, a, that's an example right here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area of how a renewable resource, trees, is helping provide local energy that market for us for it is helping deal with a problem of an invasive species the ash borer killing these trees another example of it is as we're talking about you know the amount of mass in a tree well when when you cut out two before as an example out of a tree the lumber out of it about half of the mass of the tree is left as chips or sawdust or bark or 
all, all that type of material. So here you have all this, you know, sawdust and residual byproducts of sawmills. They're turning out really great, you know, sustainably grown tubifores that's storing carbon, but we've got all this now chips and sawdust. What do we do with that? Well, it used to be that that could feed, you know, pulp mills and help provide, you know, go into another product, but the demand for that has dropped. So now we have a surplus of this residual and it could be used for these energy purposes, but we don't have uh, markets in place right now uh, to do that. You know, uh, disappointingly, there are in other countries, they've been really robust about using these residual materials to help them transition out from using, for instance, coal uh, to moving to re renewable um, energy. And so they mix the, the forest uh, residual material with coal for a better burning product for energy production. It uses less coal. And again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a step towards a renewable, sustainable future. And unfortunately, we just don't have that going on here in Minnesota to the degree that we see in other countries. But we're not there yet. We don't have a place uh, to help, help encourage that transition. And the market right now isn't, um, isn't uh, making it happen on its own. Well, let's hope that changes. I know I've always been impressed as I've learned a little bit about these large mills at the extent to which they use residual material as you know through cogeneration to to fuel the plant itself and it's it's a nice closed loop system, but I know as you're saying markets have changed for some of those products. Maybe not all of that material gets used in the cogeneration process and and I know that's a real challenge and I, I sure hope that there is some progress there to to create or or grow those markets. Because uh, that closed loop, in addition to all the things you said about uh, renewable, sustainable, it's also local. Let's talk a little bit more, Eric, about uh, about markets before your time. But, you know, uh, within the last couple of decades, we've lost a number of really big mills. Uh, Minnesota's mill capacity has dropped quite a bit in the last 20 years. And there may be many drivers, but the global economy is really a big part of that. Um, and that that really does matter. You talked earlier about rural jobs; uh, those are good paying jobs at, in local, you know, manufacturing sector uh, throughout Minnesota. Uh, and you've also talked about the importance of those markets in order to enable us to to deal with forest health issues, reduce wildfire threats. So I know there's a lot of work happening with the council and elsewhere to to grow and diversify wood products markets. And as we do that, Eric, what what can we what steps can we take in Minnesota to ensure that we're not only building that market, but doing it in a way that um, balances competitiveness on the global market with resilience? You know, we hear a lot about mass timber. We hear a lot about innovation in wood products. We had Katie Fernholtz, member of your council, uh, both on Camp Eight not long ago, and also delivering a webinar about the future of the wood products industry. So as we grow, how do we do that in a way that that both grows the pie, uh, so to speak, in terms of wood product markets, but also grows in a way that that is sustainable and and resilient to changes in the marketplace uh, that might affect those rural jobs, rural families, and livelihoods, and and so on. Boy, that's a that's a a big problem to overcome. Is how do we? It's a lot easier when the market forces just align up with all the other uh, 
issues and, and priorities uh, that we have, but they don't always. And, and we're going to, quite frankly, also have to have uh, more diversification of our forest products industry in Minnesota. You know, we, we, you know, we kind of, uh, we're, we have a, a paper mills because we have a lot of, of forest stands that are things like Aspen and, and that, that feed that are perfect for pulp. And, you know, there's a long history of why we have those type of stands, you know, and we used to have, you know, these big, massive white pine and, you know, uh, red pine forest. And, you know, what in many places kind of replaced that is some of these aspen and other things. And, you know, with climate change, uh, we see that certain types of trees are going to be uh, more compatible with uh, changes in climate than other trees. So some of the trees, spruce and aspen, that uh, those are going to struggle with the changes that are occurring in climate. While some of the other trees, red pine and, and white pine, will probably be more uh, resilient. So we're going to see over time the types of forests maybe change in Minnesota. We're going to maybe see us go back to some of these larger trees. We may, our industry may need to uh, uh, respond accordingly, and we look at a larger emphasis on uh, on type of saw timber and and and. Uh, and then, then we get into these issues about, you know, being able to have the types of trees, uh, a, a markable uh, amount of these types of trees that can be used for these other types of mass timber products. It's, it's a multifaceted issue. It has to do with, you know, market prices. It has to do with, with uh, the types of forests that grow in Minnesota both today and tomorrow. It has to do with the demand for these products. You know, it has to do with a, an evolution of maybe the housing and building industry that says we want to move away from concrete and steel and these high energy uh, types of construction materials that we mine from the ground. And we want to go back to building more wood framed types of buildings and so it's, it's all this evolution of consumer demand and evolution of markets. It's a, probably a little bit of, of policy uh, that will help stimulate the transition. And overall, what really takes is a society that's committed to being self-sufficient, to being interested in sustainability and interested in renewables. Yeah, well said. Uh, Eric, uh, we've just got a few minutes left, but I want to talk about a couple of uh, a couple other issues that are really important. We talk about we've talked a bit about markets uh, and and products. Uh, you can't get any products to market when you're talking about forestry without loggers and truckers. Um, logging contractors and truckers really are key to the supply chain, uh, and and without them, we can't do any of these things. Um, the the problem, as again, as you know, is that the logging and trucking workforces are struggling. Charlie Blinn on our faculty at the University of Minnesota, along with others, has done a bunch of research, and, and the data are pretty clear. A, a large percent, uh, percentage of those folks are nearing retirement. There are not a lot of younger people, entrepreneurs, entering the market as logging contractors. The capital costs are extremely high of timber harvesting equipment. 
Uh, it's long hours and remote locations. You know, for many people, it's a dream job, but not for everybody. And it certainly has its challenges. Um, so, you know, so, so overall, we're seeing fewer and fewer loggers and the demographics don't look great. So does the council have a role there? Is there anything the council can do to encourage new entrants to the logging and trucking workforce? And if so, what, what's the council um, doing to address that? You know, it's, it's another one of those important issues, because if you lose, yeah, you know, that component of the supply chain, you, you, the whole thing gets broken. You know, you lose the loggers. It's really hard to get that industry back. Often it's a, a family-related uh, industry like farming. It's a matter of how can, we, how can we help protect the local production, the local supply chain of those, of, that, that supports those jobs, Part of it might be, you know, just trying to make sure that, you know, kids in Minnesota, youth in Minnesota are more aware of, you know, the type of opportunities that are out there. I also have a belief that, you know, we're going to see people come to Minnesota. Pretty soon, you know, people are going to be tired of hurricanes in uh, Florida and, and wildfires in California and 120 degrees in Arizona. And where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? You're going to come to the land of 10,000 lakes, you know, a place that everyone has, uh, has always valued. And it's a state with, that's blessed with natural resources. Chief among them is an abundant amount of, of clean water. And we're going to see people come into the state. And these are potential workers, but we need to have jobs. And we need to be working about policies that help maintain local jobs that are really important for our future, for the sustainability of our forests, transitioning into this, uh, this more self-sufficient society. And so I see more people coming to Minnesota. I see the potential for the demand for a lot of, of uh, products increasing, and we need to be planning that transition. Eyes wide open we're not surprised or caught flat-footed by it. So a lot of change is coming. I'm hoping the, the Forest Resources Council uh, in the next 25 years will be uh, well-equipped for that. We're working on a strategic plan to prepare ourselves for it. So I look forward to talking to you another time about uh, how things are going as we get into all these issues. Well, Eric Skanka, I want to thank you for your time. This has been a good conversation, and I, uh, I look forward to seeing where you and the council go uh, in the next 25 years. So thanks for, for joining us here on Camp 8. Thank you. Well, Kyle, what stuck with you from that conversation with Eric Skank? Well, first of all, just an introduction to who he is. So I haven't had a chance to meet Eric yet, so it was really nice to um, get a sense of his background and see what he's thinking about it. I know he's still really early in his MFRC career, so it'll be really interesting to see how he translates some of the ideas that you and he talked about um, and then actually get into applying those ideas. Some of the things I was really interested to hear him talk about was the importance of having the capacity for active forest management, having industry around to actually be able to get um, ecologically based forest management done uh, across the state. I think that's a that was a really key takeaway for me. I think what that brought up an interesting thought to me, though, that um, I think in Minnesota, we, we always have to find that balance of not letting the major 
markets drive us too much. So we're kind of driven right now by a commodity market that's pulp. And so not necessarily setting our sights on higher potential markets. And I think we need to balance that with the other ideas that he brought up about diversification of our of our markets and of our forest industry. What were some of the takeaways for you? Uh, you know, th- these are complicated issues. So th- I thought I thought the exchange about the logger and trucker workforce, which relates very much to what you were just saying, Kyle. When you talk about capacity, it's partly markets and and uh, you know mills looking to to buy that wood. High level of demand. It's also the contractors and the the businesses and the people that get that wood uh, from the forest to the market. Uh, and that's a, that's just a hard issue. It just plain is a hard issue. There are uh, a number of forces kind of working against us there. And, and as I mentioned from Charlie Blinn's research, the demographics are not what we might like them to be in terms of new entrants to that market. I was glad to hear that he's aware of it. And I sure hope that that's an area that the council can have some influence. I know that there are others working on it too. And again, it's not an easy one to solve. Uh, but um, glad to hear that that's on his mind. You know, there were several instances in which he talked about forestry as a part of an environmental solution, you know, as a, as a way to mitigate climate change. He talked about carbon uh, as a way to, you know, using forest management as a way to build resilience. And, um, you know, this is not surprising. You and I have talked a little bit, Kyle, uh, about how forestry has changed about the, uh, you know, I, I remember 20 years ago there that some of the landscape committee meetings and, and other things really were kind of tense. There were people with very strong opinions on different sides of these issues. And we just don't see that so much anymore. And I think Eric and the way he thinks about forestry um, is exemplifying that a little bit. I think that we've developed, you know, times have changed. Uh, the issues have changed. Climate change wasn't at the front of our minds 20 years ago the way it is now. The role of carbon in forests wasn't something that we were really thinking about. Uh, and so it's it's to be expected that, that, that forestry might be seen in a different light. And on the other hand, I, I thought, you know, there was some optimism there. And I, I uh, appreciated that. Yes, the, all these issues are super complex, and uh, you do a good job of getting Eric to share his thoughts on that. I I like that you pushed him on biomass a little bit, and the fact that biomass is, was a part of Minnesota's economy, and um, he brought up that he sees uh, that, yep, yeah, it could be part of the economy again, but then he kind of talked about maybe my kids will have a role in this. And I just couldn't help but be like, well, isn't that the role of MFRC to help drive policies and help kind of drive the vision of where we might want the forest industry to go? But I don't, I actually don't know. So I guess I want to ask you, like, um, what do you see the role of MFRC in either driving policy or responding? Because the other hand, maybe MFRC being a legislative body is supposed to respond to what voters want. Well, they're, they're an advisory council. They, ad, they advise the governor and the governor's staff on forestry related issues. And I think you're right. I think, you know, I think Eric is in a position to have some influence there. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to get into what would be the right policy prescriptions, uh, to move that forward. But I think a strong case can be made for the value of local and renewable fuels, uh, displacing fossil fuels that might be mined from the other side of the planet or from uh, sites we'd rather not do that here. You know, biomass energy is one really important outlet for low-value materials, low-value wood materials that 
that that would not have markets. You were talking about merchantability earlier, and well, some trees will sell themselves, but some won't. And when we talk about early thinnings, or we talk about small diameter wood and other wood products, um, you know, that that are not going to sell themselves, those biomass energy markets can really make a big difference. Um, both in improving wood utilization, displacing fossil fuels, and and providing local renewable sources. So, uh, yeah, I think the council can have some influence there. And I, I'm really pleased to hear that Eric, as the executive director, is thinking that way. I think that that's mm-hmm. that bodes well. And and you know, he's relatively new, and I think still thinking about you know how can he uh, make the greatest change or make the greatest contributions. And yeah, I thought thought that was an interesting exchange. And I suppose the role of the landscape committees and the other things that feed up to and the MFRP, um, those will then feed into MFRC and help drive where they might spend their energy, right? So that's kind of a bottom-up mentality that they've set up. Yeah, that's a thing they've done really well. The landscape committees really do provide meaningful engagement opportunities for people to help identify priorities and create you know, these plans that, 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 uh, encourage certain kinds of conservation related behaviors, promoting conifers on the North shore, uh, diversifying, focusing on wildlife habitat and a variety of other things, uh, restoring species and forest types and plant communities and, and, and these different things. Um, it is funny. You know, I, I've thought about this a bunch and I really enjoyed the process of listing all those different organizations. And, and you just mentioned <laughs> yeah. the MFRP, the Minnesota Forest Resources Partnership. And, all of these, you know, I, I think we're really fortunate in Minnesota to have such, um, so many different organizations. And, you know, uh, 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 some people think about social capital and, you know, the connections that are made, the, the one-to-one and, and the relationships and, and people getting to know each other from different companies, different agencies, different parts of the state, you know, as they come together to serve the profession and to serve society in these roles I think really, really makes a big difference. And I think you're right. I think a lot of that bubbles up uh, to the council and through the council to the governor. And and so, yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, to, and this is why I was interested in having Eric on the show, um, you know, to hear his perspective coming into that pretty important role um, with this council that, as as we said early, early in the discussion, is uh, right on the cusp of its 25th anniversary. And I I think what I said earlier is true. I mean, an organization, organizations don't survive for 25 years if they're not um, creating value. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the way that Eric approaches that job will be a little bit different from the directors who have come before him. Uh, but uh, I was interested in hearing, you know, where he's coming from as he steps into that role. Yeah, I, I like that you were able to bring up that kind of funny tidbit about all the, or it's, I guess it's funny to me because I, I think of the diversity of agencies that we have as being almost an example of being too diversified because sometimes these different agencies don't know that each other exist. So I'm, I'm excited to hear Eric talk about the role of MFRC as basically bringing all those different groups together. But I, I want us to also be aware of being overly diversified in a way because I, I get the sense that maybe there's some volunteer fatigue of sorts because there's all these different requests for us to be able to um, uh, give service time. So I this reminds me of our interview with Katie and her, her talking about the opportunity she's had to do with service. And um, I worry that sometimes we are maybe asking too much of people when we have too many different organizations going on. But that's in, I don't know if there's a better or worse in terms of those diversities. Uh, they'll, 
or in terms of diversity and being over diversified. But we, I know we need uh, diversification of thought and all those different agencies uh, give us the opportunity to incorporate those different thoughts. So, yeah, I agree. And I think it's good. I think it's good when people are talking. And I, I think those are, uh, I think those are good. Maybe there are too many. Maybe there aren't. I don't know. It's well, as long as we're not all talking question. in our own bubbles. That, that's right. Yes. <laughs> so hopefully MFRC continues to serve that role of, uh, of, uh, be, of bringing all the bubbles together in order to be able to have productive <laughs> dialogue uh, in, in terms of forest industry, not just forest industry, but in terms of yeah, people and forests and how we relate to uh, the land. So, which is another thing to bring up here that we're just wrapping up episode 12 and uh, you and I, Eli, um, committed to doing 12 episodes and then reassessing. So it's probably good for us to mention that it might be a few weeks until the next Camp Aid episode goes on. So we're going to, uh, Eli and I, have, for the listeners, we've talked about, um, we haven't yet sat down to talk about what we want uh, Chapter 2 of Camp 8 to look like, but we, we want, wanted Chapter 1 to be these first 12 episodes, and we're happy with them, and there's it's been a learning process for both of us, I would say. <laughs> um, and so we're going to take a step back for, uh, for at least a few weeks and uh, reassess how we want to pick Camp 8 back up. So don't expect anything from us within the next couple weeks. And do drop us a line. Yeah, Kyle, I'm glad you mentioned oh, yeah. it. If there's anything that you uh, think we ought to know about your experience with Camp 8 or your ideas or whatever else, we always enjoy uh, hearing from folks. Uh, so so drop us a line. Yeah. And Kyle, on, on that idea and the idea of uh, uh, bringing the bubbles together, let's. Uh, <laughs> what, what better way to end the show? Uh, but Kyle, thank you. It's really been a pleasure to do these first 12 and, and, uh, spoiler alert, I'm pretty sure we'll be back with something. Yeah. Uh, thanks for it, inviting me to be a part of this, Eli. Yeah, it's been fun. I agree. And it'll be fun to see where it goes next. Camp 8 is produced by the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative and supported by the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural and Natural Resources Sciences, the University of Minnesota Extension, and the Cloquet Forestry Center. Thanks for tuning in and keep in touch.